years Sub-Zero, now Plane Zero. In a dystopian future, innocent people are forced to survive a deadly TV game show. Special guests Dom Monfrey and Ben Cerulevich join us to chat about Chekhov's brother, colonoscopies for family feud fans, and why rich people don't take limos anymore. Then we find out if the running man stands the test of time. Time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special episode of The Test of Time. My name is Alan Noah, and we have a packed house today, don't we, James? We have a packed house. That is correct. It is not just me, James Brief. It is not just Alan Noah. Uh-huh. We have some friends of the show here. That's right. We have member of the Five Timers Club, Dom Monfrey, joining us again. Welcome back, Dom. Thanks for having me. And... A very special first-time guest is here, Ben Sarulovich. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thank you very much, guys. It's a pleasure to be here with you all. I am really, really excited that you're here. You were supposed to join us a long time ago to talk about Revenge of the Nerds with our friend Bonnie Newman. That is still going to happen. We haven't recorded that yet, obviously. like That will happen eventually. But you were in town visiting Dom, and you said you wanted to come on to talk about The Running Man and... Hey, I'm just really excited you're here. Me too. Thank you very much. So, Ben, you could have picked any movie, and this was the movie you landed on. So, first question, why? I like this movie. I like the premise of the movie. I remember liking it back when I first saw it, and uh, it was really fun to watch it again, especially sitting with Dom. We watched it together. Oh, very nice. Yeah, and uh, it, it was really cool to watch it, and I would imagine back... When I first saw it, I thought to myself, is this what the world is going to be like in 2019? And it's just really cool that, you know, we're several years past that now. And it was cool to, to see what it was like and what the the ideas were behind the movie and what the future is or what the future held, I should say. Okay. Okay. And, and I liked Arnold Schwarzenegger a lot. Right. And so, Dom, you also wanted to come on to talk about this movie. What's your relationship with The Running Man? So I've seen the movie a bunch when I was younger. Then I read the short story and then rewatched the movie. And I noticed the stark differences between them. And, you know, the other week I was feeling sick. I was scrolling through Prime and I saw it. And I was like, hey, I haven't seen this in a while. So let's fire it up. And then uh, we had this opportunity. So then I watched it again. Oh, so you watch it like twice within the span of like a couple weeks? One week, yes. Wow. And James, you had seen this movie before too, right? Oh, I've seen this movie many times. Um, I don't think I saw it in the theater because, I mean, it came out in 1987. But I'm pretty sure I saw it right when it was on HBO. Probably, you know, a year later. That's when HBO used to get it. I had seen this movie many times. And I think this is one of the first films when Netflix went, like, uh, when, when Netflix went digital and, uh, you know, online, not CD- DVDs. I remember just kind of scrolling, and there wasn't that much great content back then. There was almost nothing original. And I remember watching uh, The Running Man. It was just something that I was like, I just want to watch this. It's an old 80s uh, 
peak Schwarzenegger film. It's the same year that Predator came out. So this literally is like yeah, peak uh, Schwarzenegger. He's uh, he's already Mr. Universe. He's already released uh, Commando, the first Terminator, and this is a big year for him. You know, Terminator Two is still a few years away. Governor, you know, it's hard to tell when, when this guy peaks, but uh, he's doing really well at this point. All right, so I'm odd man out here because I watched The Running Man for the first time in my life three days ago. Wow. wow. That's amazing, Al. I mean, I didn't like have any reason not to. It wasn't like a grudge or anything. It just never came up, I guess, for whatever reason. Do you not like Arnold Schwarzenegger? I like Arnold Schwarzenegger just fine. For whatever reason, this movie... Just never fell through the cracks. Yeah, it, it, exactly. It just fell through the cracks. I don't know why. I don't have a good reason for you, but I had never seen it. And it's not like one of those things where I think I've never seen it, and then I start watching it, and I'm like, oh, no, I have seen this. No, no, none of this seemed familiar at all. I never saw Conan the Barbarian either. Really? Yeah. What about did, the other movies that James just did? You, did you see Predator? Uh, we did Predator on the podcast. We did. But the, had you seen it prior to doing Test of Time? No. No, I had uh, not seen I it. I don't think you really like Arnold Schwarzenegger. You were not into Schwarzenegger in the, in the 80s and 90s. Were you, like, was Terminator 2 the first Schwarzenegger film you ever saw? Mm, no, because I think I did watch Terminator before I saw Terminator 2. Was Total Recall when we reviewed it? Was that the first time you saw that movie? No, no, no. no. I would seen Total Recall. I do remember in the 90s... My stepdad and I had like a little tradition where we would like rent action movies from Blockbuster and we tended to watch more Van Damme and Seagal movies than Schwarzenegger or Stallone. I can't give you a reason why. It's just a thing that we did. I feel like I've seen most of the Van Damme and Seagal movies of that era. The Van Damme Seagal oeuvre, if you will. Yeah, I, I think that might be a little bit generous, but sure, I guess. Um, I was going to make a bad joke about the running man, the dance. Like I used to do that in the early nineties. Remember, remember the running man? I do. What was the difference between the running man and the Roger rabbit? Oh, you got me on that one. I've never heard of the Roger rabbit. Really? I think it was a trick question. I think they were the exact same thing. <laughs> you just mentioned that you've been watching Steven Seagal films. I assume that this were kind of the bigger ones, you know, Out for Justice, Hard to Kill. Under Siege. You know, like Under Siege, like those ones before he became, you know, these like 12 movies a year. Oh, sure. There is a YouTube channel. There's this guy, Space Ice. I'm just giving him a plug because he basically kind of summarizes the uh, Steven Seagal films and they're hysterical. And he does not do Out for Justice Under Siege. He only does the films like A Man with a Gun. You know, he'll summarize, and these people come to jump Seagal for what reason? We never find out who they are. And it, it's fantastic. If you want like 12 minutes, I actually do workouts kind of watching them because I'll laugh and be distracted. So uh, plug for Space Ice. Okay. I mean, I'm only going to say this because you just mentioned working out. I did watch The Running Man while on the treadmill. So I was a running man watching The Running Man. Hashtag meta. Legit. Wow. Yeah. For people who are not like uh, Dom and Ben and I, who have seen this film several times, this movie is about a dystopian 2019, where which is 2019 of the future from when this film came out in 1987. And in this 2019, America is a totalitarian state. The most popular television program is called The Running Man, and it's a game show where prisoners are hunted live for the entertainment of the viewing audience. 
Arnold Schwarzenegger plays Ben Richards, a soldier framed by the government who has to run for his life on the show. He must avoid the killer stalkers while also outmaneuvering the game show's corrupt host, Damon Killian, played by Richard Dawson. Ultimately, Richards decides to do more than just survive. He helps the resistance fighters strike back against the evil government. So this is the part where I ask you how the movie did at the box office, and I'm mildly curious about that. But I'm much more curious to know what this movie's budget is, because my guess is small. But you tell me, James. You know, I had seen conflicting reports somewhere anywhere from the teens to like uh, mid twenties. Okay. And I had seen somewhere twenty-seven million. So yeah, it's a decent uh, budget. It's uh, certainly there have been higher budgets. Um, the film opened on November thirteenth, nineteen eighty-seven. It opened at number one, and it was number one for several weeks, and opened with uh, $8 million, ultimately ending with uh, $38 million domestically. Um, it beat a lot of other films uh, at the time. Uh, it beat a movie, I'll give you a hint, A Bunny in a Pot. Does anyone know this film? I'm going to say Basic Instinct. You're very close, but incorrect. The other one, Ben, you know? Fatal Attraction. That's right, yes, yeah. Fatal Attraction. Uh -huh. Then the next week, uh, it beat a film that we reviewed. Uh, it was the first film, Al, that your daughter requested to do on this podcast. Cinderella. Correct, yes. Uh, Cinderella, this was back when uh, Disney used to just re-release uh, the films in the movie theaters and always would be, you know, easy for a couple, uh, 20 million or so. Um, it also beat a movie, have you ever heard of this film called Flowers in the Attic? Sounds vaguely familiar. I couldn't tell you anything about it. It was one of those random films that my family had on VHS, and I found it to be incredibly like slow and boring, but uh, um, it was watched a lot. And there was another film. We did not review this film, but it is a 80 sequel, and the second film, it's not the number two. It's not TWO. It's not Roman numeral two, but it says, same name of the first film, T-O-O. -O. Is it Look Who's Talking To? No, um, that, that's a good guess. Think cheesier than Look Who's Talking. There's only a handful of movies where they did that. Teen Wolf 2? Teen oh, Wolf 2. That's good job. Ah, yes. Yeah. So Teen Wolf 2, it also beat that one. So this movie is based on a book written by Richard Bachman, who is Stephen King. Dom, you said you'd read the book? I had. Good, bad, better, worse in the movie? I enjoyed it very much. I think that they're so completely different that I didn't compare them. It wasn't an apples to apples sort of thing. It was just, it was its own thing, and I enjoyed it for it being that. And I was really kind of shocked. I thought that the book would have made a good adaptation for a movie. This movie, which I think is good, is not that. Okay, so what's the, the book about then? I don't remember. <laughs> I, I, I read it 15 years ago. Okay. I read it years ago. Um, and I did have to brush up on it to see some of the differences. But uh, one big difference is that the game is not in an arena. It's the entire country. And a big difference is that these are not criminals that are being... It's not like the gladiators. Gladiators, sorry, you. throwing a, you know, people to the lions or something. This was uh, actually volunteers. And it's sort of like Squid Game, if people have seen that, that it's so dystopian that Ben Richards, 
he's incredibly poor and his I think his daughter is sick and he has to make money and so he volunteers he's described as incredibly thin and sickly because you know he's malnourished in this dystopian future obviously not like a 1987 Arnold Schwarzenegger um, they're paid by the hour for every hour that this, they survive and everyone in America participates so it's basically a, a, a countrywide manhunt and there's rules he has to check in every day with like mail and a tape and stuff so they know that he's uh, he's still like participating and he's told that uh, his wife and daughter were killed and he winds up hijacking an airplane and he basically crashes it into the either the national headquarters or the television studio that makes the running man and that's kind of a Stephen King ending right there like there's no happy ending it's uh it's just like if I'm gonna lose you're going down with me that that one of those endings Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about this version of a dystopian future. Because we've watched many movies on this podcast, and there's a million TV shows and books and all kinds of things about dystopian futures. This movie starts with text on screen that explains, kind of, how this dystopian future came about. In 2017, the world economy has collapsed. There's no food or natural resources or oil. And so now there's a police state with paramilitary zones. Okay, I guess I can buy that. But then also the government is in charge of entertainment. And so they have this show where people kill each other. To me, that felt like a really big leap from like A to B to C, like it just didn't really make a lot of sense to me. Did you guys get that? Well, didn't they explain it? I mean, how? I believe it was uh, Dawson. Well, that's not his name. In it's that's Killian. Richard Dawson. Yeah. He said he said good times aren't enough. They need more. The public needs more. And uh, the killing, the thrill. I think, if I remember correctly, um, that's why he was justifying it because life itself just wasn't good enough. It wasn't popular enough. It wasn't. It didn't grab people's attention. It didn't hold it. But The Running Man never, ever got boring. Even though the premise was the same on, on you know, killing criminals, killing the, the people, the public needed that. They craved that. They wanted that. And that helped give control. That was mentioned or that's the way I took it? I absolutely agree. I think this is a tale as old as time. I think you can go back to the Roman times. It's, it used to be called Bread and Circuses. You know, this is what Nero and Caligula would do. It was, I can't really fix shit, so why don't I, like, let people see people being eaten by lions? They love this shit. And it's been it's been on forever. Uh, and Eichmann, he figured out the power of film. And it really took control. Look at what film, maybe you can just say television. Look at what television, the control. One or two channels can completely change the entire face of a country, if not the, the planet. Can you really think that there's countries in this world that, not the running man, but they wouldn't have? Everything is super happy. And look at all these criminals, or let's call them, you know, firing on the protesters. They're pedophiles. They're the worst people in the world. Like, couldn't you see in America where they're like, we kill pedophiles every week? Like, I'm not saying it's happening now, but should certain things go the way they could, this is the first step in something I think could happen. And it's a tale as old as time. Yeah, I think this is sadly believable. I think one thing that also kind of threw me about this dystopia was also just the fact that 
at one point they're talking about how they're also like a moral state and there's like morality clauses and you can't listen to music and you can't go drinking and they're talking about Amber and she was immoral because she had sex with two, sometimes three men in a single year. Oh yeah. Okay, so they're out of food and resources so then they're like a morality police state. Like, it just didn't gel for me. Like, I'm not buying how all of these things connect. I mean, this is not only a thing that could happen. This has already happened. Uh, There was a woman uh, 10 years ago, randomly, like, she goes before Congress and talks about, I don't know, birth control pills should be covered by insurance. And then there was an incredibly popular uh, uh, radio personality, Rush Limbaugh. He famously called this woman a slut. And it's the morality police. I understand all of these things. I just feel like in these kinds of movies, the government is like authoritarian because they're rationing the food or they're authoritarian because they have decided like what is moral and what isn't. Or they just like murdering people because they're, you know, a dictatorship run by an evil villain. Is it like all three at the same time? Usually in like these kinds of movies? You know, it's very interesting that what they show about this dystopian future is they show a lot of aspects of society. You see people like Amber, uh, Maria Chicanonzo's character. She seems to be, you know, a young professional. She lives in a very nice apartment, which seems to have all the modern uh, the, the technology. And I thought they did a good job of not doing too, you know, stupid future stuff. It was all, you know, digital passports and stuff. I thought that was good. Did you notice that when she was in her apartment... Everything she did was very believable. She didn't say Alexa, but she said, turn on the lights, start the toast, turn on the TV. These are all things that are very believable in modern society. These are all things you could absolutely do. Yeah, that's true. Also, though, her TV was a 1980s television. Like, it is a giant, big, fat CRT, and a lot of the things in this movie were definitely from the 80s. How do you propose that in 1987 they do something anything different as in making newer fake tvs to look like they're from 2019 i mean i'm just curious about i'm just you know asking you like how do you what what could have been done differently well back to the future part two came out in 1989 and that movie takes place or the first part of it takes place in 2015 and they create a future that looks futuristic. Marty McFly sees like the hologram of Jaws 19 and he goes into the restaurant and he sees like the the person on the screen. It's doable. Like it's believable in certain aspects. The reason I asked James earlier about like how small was the budget for this movie is because when you're making a movie in 1987 and if you have kind of a small budget and you're showing an apartment, yeah, you just get a regular TV. I understand it. I'm not saying like they're wrong for doing it. I vaguely remember saying something similar uh, when we talked about RoboCop. You know, that movie also takes place in the future and they they literally create a cop who is part man, part robot, but all of their TVs look like the TVs from 1987 because those were the TVs they had on set or that they could buy. Even when uh, Killian shows up at the TV studio and he's in, you know, a quote unquote futuristic limo, no, that's just like a limo from the 80s. It just looks very 80s. It's a stretch Maserati. It's It's pretty cool. (laughs) I'm not saying it's not cool, but it doesn't look like something from 30 years in the future. It looks like something from the 80s. 
I, I get that, and, and I agree with that. And you mentioned something about budget, so immediately my mind goes to, well, if you were to take the look at the budget of Back to the Future 2, could that be an answer or reason as to why there was a discrepancy? You know, I have to agree a little with Al. I think it's a fair criticism. Uh, when you're doing as much attention to detail, you could overlook something like uh, the monitors, but I also think it's it's fair to, to notice that because even things like Star Trek from the 60s, uh, Star Wars from 77, you know, they just have a flat panel to, to talk to the other people. It could have been done, but, you know, it, it's not that big a deal to me. I, I didn't notice that. You, know, you guys were mentioning that stretch Maserati. Something that I've noticed is that I think the idea of a stretch limousine is completely passe. That, that used to be the symbol for, uh, you know, richness. And I feel like you don't see that as much anymore. And I feel like even people go to prom and like, really nice uh, Escalades and stuff, and not necessarily, uh, you know, an actual stretch, stretch limo. I don't know about prom, but I'm just saying, like, you don't see limos around like you used to. Totally agree. I don't know. I can't remember the last time I was in a limo. Wait, well, last time you saw a limo, even at an airport, there used to be limos at airports, like, picking up the rich people. That's a great, great point. Now, as I'm thinking, thinking about it, I haven't really seen limousine transportation, because now it's phantoms it's my box it's more of a sedan with the with the driver you still have the driver aspect you know but you're right back in the day the super stretch limousine was was the hot stuff and you get uber black today if you want nothing but like lexus and up you just pick uber black you don't have to deal with calling a limo company when i see limos now it, it kind of takes me out of it one other thing about like their the future as conceived in 1987, when the lawyer is talking to Richards about the rights of the show or whatever, he's saying Latin. He's saying gobbledygook, which I think is maybe supposed to be a joke. But he says on cassettes and videotapes and bubble chips. Like that was like the futuristic thing that like they came up with is bubble chips. It's like, eh, I, I that's like a cool name. I thought that was original. I like that they added and all methods known and unknown to just as a cover your ass sort of thing at the end of that. That is true. They do say stuff like that from my time working in television, like for all forms of media, uh, heretofore unknown in all perpetuity throughout the known universe. And like, there's that kind of legalese. Because, you know, in, in the old days, in the 80s or 90s, they might have said home video, but they didn't say streaming. So now there's a loophole. Like now they cover their asses with vague descriptors of anything that anyone could ever think of. And, you know, speaking of uh, other shows and streaming ways, I, I love that this uh, channel, ICS, doesn't just have The Running Man. There's a part when they're showing The Running Man, they go to commercial, and they show a small little clip of this other dystopian game show. It's a really dark show called Climbing for Dollars. And they only show like 20 seconds of this show. But it's amazing. They get this guy, he's climbing up a rope, like the kind of rope you need to climb in gym class. And there's like $100 bills every like three feet. And he has to like put them in his mouth as he climbs. But the catch is that there's these like Rottweilers like chewing at the rope and uh, shaking it. And, uh, it, it, you know, if you can make it to the top, I guess you keep your cash. But the guy we see, we see him fall presumably to his death and just freeze frames. And it's like, we'll be back with, with uh, climbing for dollars after this. I thought it was great. 
I want to make a small correction. You don't see him fall. It's the freeze frame before he falls. And so you kind of think that you see him fall. And I'm only nitpicking that because I think there's a lot of that in this movie where they cut away right before you see the thing. So your brain kind of does the trick where your brain fills in that you totally saw the thing, but you don't see it because I don't think they had the money to spend on it. In the case of this, they do show him being shot with gas of some sort. (laughs) Which, like, okay, you already have the Doberman Pinchers trying to get him, and then you're going to throw that at him. So, I mean, I do think he lets go of the rope before they stop it. Okay. I thought that they had cut the rope and that he was falling, which was pretty funny. If they named it Climbing for Cash, I guess they didn't do it fast enough. You don't don't get to keep any of the cash. Now you fall down to the the dogs and get eaten. And, you know, Al, uh, you have a history in television. If this is a TV show and it says, we'll be right back, you don't want to show exactly what happens. You know, you kind of want to have that, like, what? Right after the gas is in his face, maybe he catches at the last second, maybe he doesn't. And, you know... Tune in after these important messages. Right, right. And there are a lot of jokes in this movie about entertainment and television and sort of like this merger of government with entertainment. Like at one point they reference the Department of Justice Entertainment Division and they talk about we need to get the president on the phone. Actually, no. We need to get the president's agent on the phone. I think that's supposed to be funny. Like, a lot of those gags didn't really land for me. It seemed more of, like, a kernel of an idea that they didn't fully flesh out yet. Hearing the term Justice Department Entertainment Division was so incredibly dark. To me, that was selling the dystopia. I didn't take it as a joke. I took it as, this is how bad things are. I could see a situation where uh, there's a president that installs a cabinet of entertainment to make sure that the wrong things aren't said in entertainment. And who decides what the wrong things are? Well, that's, you know, (laughs) the dystopian future. Right. The Hayes Code comes back. Right. Whoever President DeSantis appoints to pick what can and cannot be shown on TV. Well, you know. That's 2028. Oh, dear God. The one gag that I did laugh at was when they were talking about, like, the prizes for the running man. And one of the grand prizes is a trial by jury. Yeah, I have that written <laughs> yeah. down, too. Like, <laughs> you that, can win it. <laughs> right, right, right. Like, that, to me, was, like, the joke that's funny. And I felt like a lot of the other ones were like, oh, we've got an idea for a joke. Maybe there's something here. But that one was funny. I forget exactly what the scene was, but there was a loudspeaker it was an announcement being played over the loudspeaker, and they're talking about how in October you get double the cadre kids get ca- cadre double kids. recruitment points for turning in family. Right, right. I mean, same same thing. That like I was listening, to, I was like, well, yeah, I mean, that's funny and all, right? But on the flip side of that coin, maybe it's not. If that was like a real, as what you were talking about, Dom, like that's that's some scary. If you put yourself in there, like that's the world that's going on where they're they're gonna bribe these kids to turn in their family, right? Just to get extra points. I mean, that's dystopian if I've ever heard of it. And ICS for their uh, advertisement there, they say ICS seeing is believing, which I think comes back into play later on. There are states in the country right now in the year that we're living in where if you know somebody that had an abortion or aided in an abortion, turn them in. You might even get a cash prize. They don't call it a cash prize, but you can sue them. I, I believe you can sue them or there's a bounty or whatever it is. I mean, this is, this is reality. True. That is a very good point. 
And, you know, I do want to talk about uh, one piece of casting in this film. The casting of Richard Dawson as Damon Killian. Richard Dawson, for people who aren't uh, familiar with him, he was on a lot of game shows in the 70s and 80s. Uh, he was uh, the host of The Family Feud, that show now hosted by Steve Harvey. He was also on The Match Game. There's a channel I watch called Buzzer. It's my background show that I put on. So I see some old match games here and there. And yeah, Richard Dawson was really kind of, uh, you know, he was a cool 70s cat. He always wore these like velvet suits on TV. And he kind of famously on The Family Feud, he'd kiss all the women often on the lips, and he's awesome in this film. I think he's fantastic. I think he's also incredibly intelligent-sounding, but also he, he sounds very realistic to certain powerful hosts today. Yeah, I, I watched Richard Dawson on Family Feud, and if you remember seeing that, you should probably get a colonoscopy. Um, <laughs> but he was great. He was. You're absolutely right. He was conniving. He was plotting. He knew what he was doing. He played a lot like he wasn't in charge. Like, uh, it's not me. It's the contract with the government. But you know that he was doing it. He oh, was pulling the strings. I mean, I know that you love those old timey game shows because you always put them on whenever I come over. And they're not my favorite. But when I saw that, I was like, oh, James must love this. He was well cast in this movie. I, I agree with that. Yeah. And, you know, he's a good foil to Arnold Schwarzenegger. And, you know, that's a tough thing to cast. You know, when you make someone like Robert Patrick in the Terminator 2, this slim guy, and, wow, he's totally uh, matches Arnold Schwarzenegger. Sometimes you really nail it. And I thought uh, Dawson was great. Um, another piece of casting in this film, I did not remember that he was in this film, Kurt Fuller. Do you know who he is, Al? Yes. The first thing that pops into my mind that he did was a very, very short-lived series called That's My Bush, or actually I guess I should pronounce it, That's My Bush! Exclamation point, uh, which was a live-action show created by the South Park guys, Trey Parker, Matt Stone, and I think it only ran for eight episodes. I might even have that show on DVD, or maybe I did and lent it to someone and it's gone now. But he played Carl Rove on that show, and that was perfect casting uh, because he's just like a character actor and he just plays like that kind of sleazy guy very, very well. I also think of him in Ghostbusters 2 when he played like the sleazy mayor's aide, assistant, something like that, who has the Ghostbusters committed. I mean, to be fair, we have to give him his credit because we've been doing this at this podcast for 350-something episodes, and we have made an homage to Kurt Fuller 350-something times based on his character Russell from Wayne's World. We start every single episode with Kurt Fuller's line from Wayne's World. We do in five, four. Three and we do the five, four, three, two, one fingers exactly how we did it, uh, or our interpretation of them sometimes. But you know, credit to you, Mr. Fuller. We have uh, you know we have a, a long tradition on this podcast based on your role. Mm -hmm. Let's get into the game itself, which is called the Running Man in the movie, The Running Man. So they have to get through these four quadrants, and that's in. A city? Is it L.A.? Is that it, right? It's in L.A. It is part of the area that was destroyed by the 97 earthquake, which we can't forget. All right. So the, And so the rules are that they need to be 
in all four of the quadrants in order to win, right? They have to make it through. Don't they have to make it through all four quadrants without being killed in order to win? Like the three guys, I forget the winners of the the last year prior that ended up dead on the the Price, Whitman, and Haddad. Price, Whitman, and Haddad. Kudos to you. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I think you have to escape all four. You have to make your way into each quadrant and out of each quadrant. When you get out of the fourth quadrant, allegedly, you win the game and you go start your life elsewhere. Okay, I did not feel like the rules of this game were made clear at all because if you have to get through the four quadrants, you would think that like you'd want to go close to the middle and do like a tight little loop, or you could maybe go like a wider circle, but then that slows you down. Like they don't talk about any of that in this movie. That's fair. The rules aren't clearly explained very well. It doesn't matter because the rules are rigged, and this is just for killing people. Very interesting that in entering each zone, there was a door that closed or a gate that dropped. You know, you know, there was a particular part of each quadrant. There was a scene where you were trapped. That's where I was thinking, even though it might not have been explained, you know, you're going to get trapped in each quadrant. You got to beat the boss level. You got to beat the guy to get out. Right. I was thinking it was more linear rather than, say, like a 400 square blocks, like in a square, that it was just in a row. Okay. Yeah, I mean, like, I know what you're talking about with, like, the the fences and the barriers. I didn't understand that those were the quadrants specifically. And if they are linear, then they really shouldn't call them quadrants. And I guess I should not get hung up on the word quadrants. And I probably said the word quadrants more in the last 10 seconds than I ever have on this podcast before. And I will stop now, I promise. I want to talk about some of these stalkers. I want to talk about all the stalkers. Uh, the first guy they kill, Sub-Zero. I love this one. And I love the line at the end. Do you remember it, Dom? Yes. Here is Sub-Zero. Now just plain Zero. Exactly. It's awesome. Is that awesome? That is a terrible, terrible one-liner. It's amazing. And it's an amazing Arnold action hero one-liner. I'm sorry. At one point, they call him Professor Sub-Zero? Yes, so the the actor was Professor Tanaka. That was his wrestling name in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Oh. So they at one point referred to him as Professor Sub-Zero in the movie, even though he's credited as only Sub-Zero. And then one other point, do you realize that this is the second movie with a character named Sub-Zero that we've all discussed? Oh, uh, right. right. That's right, because the other movie that you were on the podcast to talk about with a character named Sub-Zero was... What was, what was the name of it, Al? What is the theme song, Al? The movie was called... <laughs> yes, exactly. Mortal Kombat. Right, that's what I said. Right. <laughs> when they were betting on the matches, you look up on the board and they were writing all the odds. It wasn't Sub-Zero, it was Zub-Zero. Did you guys catch that? No, with like a Z? Yes. Yes, huh. Dom and I had to stop and back the movie up. He was like, "Did that? That didn't say it was Sub Zero. Z U B S E R O." Well, maybe because there's not enough food and there's a morality police, the people aren't good at spelling. My like, question mark. I don't know. Poor vitamin A. Maybe. Um, <laughs> uh, then after Sub Zero's, you know, reduced to plain Zero, they send out two stalkers. Buzzsaw, a kind of like a Hulk Hogan-looking guy uh, with a chainsaw, and then they send Dynamo. He is an opera singing electric guy that can shoot electricity from from his, you know, his apparatus that he wears. 
And it's all theatrical because most of the show, it's not about capital punishment. It's about entertaining the audience. And they're giving home games to the, to the old ladies in the audience. And there's dancers for the first few minutes. And, of course, uh, Dino is going to come out and do a little opera. And I just think this over-the-top opera singing, it's ridiculous, but it totally fits the theme of this game show. I mean, this is all a spectacle. And I, I think Dynamo's outfit, as stupid as it is, it fits the show perfectly. I like the cheesiness to over-the-top with Dynamo. But something that really stuck out to me, I, I don't know why, is he comes in, he starts shooting lightning out of his apparatus. He shoots a wall filled mm -hmm. with metal and neon tubes. The tubes don't explode, but the neon just magically lights up. I found it exceptionally unbelievable and cheesy entrance, which, to your point, I think kind of rides along with that way over the top. Like, this shit could never happen. You know, I actually thought the same thing, but I thought a little deeper. He shoots a little electricity at the sign. Suddenly it lights up and says Dynamo. I think it's fake. I think he's shooting electricity, which is real, both electricity. I think the show just turns it on. It shouldn't work, but I think the audience buys it. So Dynamo comes out with Buzzsaw, and Buzzsaw has a chainsaw. And, okay, fine. A big, strong, hulking dude carrying a chainsaw. That's scary, right? Terrifying. Like, of, of course. But Dynamo is laughable because he's wearing a shirt that has light bright bulbs on it. Christmas tree. Or yeah. a Christmas tree. You, you know what it reminded me of? When I was a kid, I remember going to Disneyland and my dad got me a visor, like a sun visor to keep the sun out of your eyes. And it had a little row of lights on it that you powered with a nine volt battery. And you could not convince eight-year-old Alan that there was anything in this world cooler than that fucking visor. And it was the stupidest thing ever. And I actually tried to look for a picture of it before and I couldn't find one. But that's what this guy is wearing. Well, good news. Eight-year-old Alan designed this character. <laughs> I mean, no. And you only need a couple of the lights on your visor. You don't need them all over your shirt. That's ridiculous. There's a scene uh, shortly after this where Buzzsaw's dead and uh, the Dynamo, he's out. Uh, Fireball's been killed at this point. And then they say, uh, paging Captain Freedom, which is uh, played by Jesse Ventura. And Jesse Ventura's like, fuck this. I'm going to get killed if I go against this guy. And he barges into Killian's room and he is wearing the cheapest piece of shit that you could possibly... Like, I always, as a kid, I'm like, what is that piece of crap? However, I was convinced that it would have looked amazing on air. Like, I'm sure Dynamo's outfit, when it wasn't on, it looked so dumb. And I love how cheesy Captain Freedom's uh, outfit is. But I agree with thinking it looks incredibly stupid. You know, that's a good point about Captain Freedom. Because he calls it out, like, I appreciated that. He's like, this is crap. I'm not going to go out there with this crap. I'm like, yeah, of course. And to your point about how it would look on TV, from a 1987 point of view where there's only standard definition, you know, something looks very, very different on screen than it looks in real life. And then once HD came along, and I know this from my time working in TV, they had to rebuild sets. Because the set that looked perfectly fine in standard def looked like absolute shit once they switched to HD. And, you know, they, they had to, like, rebuild things. And, you know, when they made this movie, they weren't thinking, oh, in 2019, there will actually be 4K definition. They didn't have the foresight to think of that, I guess. 
with something else with Captain Freedom that absolutely came to be uh, true. Maybe not five years ago, but uh, when Captain Freedom refuses to fight uh, the Richards, the game show's stuck. They have no more stalkers left. So they basically decide to fake it. They fake a fight, and it looks so realistic. And, you know, back then it looked totally sci-fi, but today we call them deep fakes. You could absolutely make this same scene. It's not that hard to do. So... They said that they were no, no more stalkers, but at the beginning, right, they were like, oh, the energy in here is real amped up. They're all looking forward to doing this. And there are a lot of guys back there that really built all wearing the same thing as if, like, they're stalkers that are getting ready to go out. But then, yeah, four stalkers later, like, oh, we have to unretire the 10-time champ. But they still show the people in the, in the locker room. I was like, what's going on there? You know what I found very, very interesting? We haven't mentioned it yet. The age, the age of the stalkers on this TV, the TV show that's run at least 10 years because Captain Freedom is a 10-time champion, right? Okay. Why are they so fucking old? <laughs> They're old. They're out of shape. I mean, in comparison to Ben Richards in the show, right? And uh, even in comparison to, to his two friends, you know, they're old. And I found that to be very, very weird and... and Ironically enough, a little unsettling. Like, there's something didn't add up with me. Yes, they got the job done. They, you know, obviously they had great careers. Uh, Sub Zero had 30 lifetime kills. And, but why? Well, my answer would be that this is makeup and wardrobe because I agree with you. Um, Captain Freedom, uh, Jesse Ventura kind of looks like he's one of these football players that, you know, is certainly not in uh, fighting shape again. But. This is the exact same year that Predator comes out. And Jesse Ventura is huge in that film. He's holding like a howitzer the whole time. So, you know, that I, I think they kind of just gave him a kind of a doofy hairdo and uh, this bright blue blazer. And, you know, I think uh, they really did a good job. You, you point out well that yeah, this guy looks out of shape. Like even maybe his prime he could have taken Richards. But no, he knows I'm not killing this guy. There was one interesting thing. You brought up Predator. So in the movie The Predator, they never showed Jesse Ventura next to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right. Because Ventura dwarfs him. He is 6'5", 300 pounds. Schwarzenegger is not that big. So like 5'8", or something, right? Uh, I don't know his exact height, but definitely okay. not over 6 feet. Um, but so in this, they do have to force them to fight. And in this, right, there are a couple of times where Arnold Schwarzenegger is really made to look small. Buzzsaw, way bigger than him. Right. And Captain Freedom, too. Both way bigger than him. Yeah, Arnold's over six feet. Oh, okay. Um, but kind of to both of your points, I think part of it is just sloppy, right? Like, they, this movie is sloppy in its execution. That's why in the beginning there's a million of these stalkers, and then later on there's only four. Why do these guys look old and out of shape? Eh, because, you know, Jesse Ventura is a popular wrestler. Who cares? Also, they don't have to be guys who are in good shape if you have one guy who has a hockey stick that is so sharp it can cut through metal, and then you have one guy who has a chainsaw, and then you have another guy who has a flamethrower. I mean, maybe for the guy who wears the light bright shirt, maybe he needs to be strong, and that guy is actually like a, a physically big dude, uh, but then also he never fights anyone. He just drives... Uh, car that looks cool but also can't go uphill he screamed like a bitch when the car flipped over what kind of what kind of uh you know hunter help me 
help me out of my cut to commercial cut to commercial (laughs) right right along those lines then richard spares him right and and he does that on camera and remember the public thinks that richard's killed all of these innocent people because that's the lie that the government told them they showed them that footage but then they see that oh he won't kill dynamo even though he could he's justified in doing it and he doesn't there's no payoff for that where like you know the audience sees oh maybe he's a good guy or maybe dynamo says Hey, you could have killed me and you didn't. I'm going to fight alongside you. And then later Dynamo does come back and he tries to rape Amber, but she kills him very easily. It's like, what was the point of keeping him alive? That accomplished nothing for the story. That's not true. I don't think at all. Okay. You see the studio audience, they turn. They're like, no, kill him. Even, you know, Killian is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. this is a great battle. One guy's down. Another one's out, you know, down but not out. Like... The audience just wants death. They don't care who's doing it. I think it's used to show how depraved the audience has become. I was going to say something along those lines. Uh, I agree with Dom that the, the audience does make a, a turn. And the, uh, this old lady in the audience, uh, she's told to guess who's going to get the first kill. And she says, Ben Richards. And she says, that guy's like one bad motherfucker. Yeah, I agree with you, Al, that she didn't think he's a good guy or, or that maybe he wasn't as guilty, the butcher of Bakerfield. But I, I do think the audience does turn. By the way, I want to mention at that point, something was ringing in my head when they kept calling him the butcher of Bakersfield. Did that ring in anyone else's it head? It did. I, I was listening to it and I was like, oh, there's something weird about it, but I never put my finger on it. So Sweeney Todd is the butcher of Baker Street. So I just kept thinking, like, I don't know, maybe they took it from that. or He's um, a demon barber of Fleet Street. James it. Um, but, all right, so let's get to the end of the game where they decide that they are going to find the freedom fighters who are in the quadrant where the game show takes place, which makes no fucking sense at all. Like, this is supposed to be a televised arena where there's a million cameras everywhere. We see the running man, the game show in the movie, and it does look like there are cameras everywhere to get all of the the great shots of all of these kills. And that's where the resistance sets up their like main base. I agree with you. That's one thing that always bothered me about this film. Had this taken place in more of a novel, The Running Man, where they're mixing in with people. It's an insurgency. You can never find these people. That would make sense. But I never understood that either. And I feel like it could be explained. But they don't explain it. And, and it doesn't make sense to me. That, that I, I totally agree with you. When I, when I think about it, it does make a little bit of sense. You know, if the resistance doesn't want to be caught... Nobody from ICS or the general public is going into the tunnels to go looking for it. It's actually hiding in plain sight. It does make sense because nobody's ever going to go down there. It could be one of those, it's the last place they'll ever look kind of strategies. It's possible. I want to shift gears for a second, guys. I I must have said this to Dom like five times while we're watching the movie. Did anybody notice the substandard safety features for the rocket sled... That shoots the contestant down (laughs) into the game and the net that goes up. Forget about snapping your neck. I mean, the thing is going so fast in the tube. It's going halfway up the side like a a slalom, like a, a bobsled. 
And then it just hits the net. They just get out. Like, did anybody else notice that? It looked like something you would have seen at Action Park. <laughs> yeah. It, it wasn't a seatbelt. There was cuffs that didn't even hold the arm in place. Well, also, then, like, they shoot the, the three of them, uh, Richards and his two friends, down at the same time. But one crashes into the net. And then, like, a second later, the next person crashes into the net. You don't see anyone, like, move the car out of the way. And, like, there's people there who are like, hey, you, get out of that car. We're going to beat you up or whatever. But apparently someone is also being very thoughtful of, like, oh, but we also need to just move this car out of the way so that the next person doesn't crash. And then at the end, when Killian goes down the exact same tube in the exact (laughs) same car, he crashes into the billboard of himself which is a poetic death. I get it, but how come that one crashes and the other ones didn't? I do completely agree with you, Al, that the fact that the two uh, two uh, accomplices, uh, Weiss and Laughlin, uh, they are going right past each other in a rocket uh, car. It is an error that they go out the same tube. But I thought in a real dystopian future game show like this, I feel like that would be part of it. Like, let's just crash two of them. Maybe one will survive, maybe both. Maybe they'll be mangled. The audience will fucking love it. I kind of thought that they were coming down different tubes. Agreed. Uh, and thank goodness we had five minutes of tube footage. <laughs> That's true. It was a lot of footage. It's like the same three shots that they recycle each time, but sure. Just to go back to it for a second, Al, I think you said you don't know why the net didn't go up. In the scene, in the broadcast booth, there was a command given to put the net up. That's uh-huh. why, because what, once Killian gets shot down the tube, you know, there's nobody in the broadcast center. There's nobody running the cameras. They're just running live nobody's in there to push the button to put the net up which makes perfect sense and when he gets spits out the tube there's nothing to stop him i mean he takes a massive flight with an upwards trajectory but i just do do want to push back there was clearly something to stop him it was the strategic reserve of gasoline because what else could cause that explosion why did they keep it all behind the poster of him (laughs) i mean also like that netting looked like you know the cheap Plastic crap. JV hockey net. Yeah, exactly. That was not going to stop a rocket car going 150 miles an hour. I do have to ask, uh, did you notice who played the, uh, the the leader of the resistance and the guy who took the bombs off? Yeah, that's Mick Fleetwood from Fleetwood Mac. And it's very, very weird that he's in this movie. I love him as a musician. He's not an actor, really. Uh, he plays a character named Mick. Although his character is Mick M-I-C, and his real name is Mick M-I-C-K, so it's totally different, I guess? The uh, theory uh, that I've read online is that he's actually playing himself in the film, and there's a couple clues to it. In the beginning, he's uh, taking Ben Richards, uh, Schwarzenegger's uh, bomb off his neck, and uh, he says, you're one of the cops who locked up all my friends and burned my songs. And this is the idea that they would have burned all the Fleetwood Mac songs. And it's like Sean Connery possibly being James Bond in The Rock. And, you know, you don't know. Maybe it is. Did you see what the name of his accomplice was? Played by Dweezil Zappa. No. Stevie. Mm-hmm. And had the beret was all made up to look like Stevie Nicks. Nice. Right, right. And also, yeah, Dweezil Zappa's there. Okay, why not? He has like one line in the movie. If you're going to put a Zappa in your movie, like give him something cool to do. They gave him uh, his dad's famous line, uh, don't touch that dial. Uh, I do want to say quickly, though, I love the beginning part with the uh, bomb on the uh, neck 
uh, the prison escape is uh, kind of ridiculous, but they, you know, they, they overtake the prison pretty quickly. That guy that runs towards the uh, perimeter fence and he gets his head blown off, and they show it. They show his head exploding <laughs> like a watermelon. It's done pretty well for 1987, I have to say. Chico! <laughs> All right, well, I, I want to talk about, like, the end where they do show this footage that, you know, brings down this, you know, authoritarian government where they show the real footage of what happened in the very first scene of the movie where uh, Richards is told to fire on the civilians and he says no. And then apparently they told the story where he did and that's why he's in prison and that's why he is the butcher of Bakersfield. So... There is this unedited footage that Amber sneaks out. First of all, how does she get the footage? There's no way. We see her get caught. She's looking through the files, and then she's immediately grabbed instantly. She had no time to take the bubble disc or whatever. Because I had seen this film, and because she implies she hid it in her underwear, um, if you watch her steal this little disc, there is a moment where she could have quickly stuck it down her pants. It's not something that's obvious. Um, you know, I see it because I'm looking for it because that's what she says she does later. There is a possible moment where she does uh, hide it. Did you guys notice that they had video footage from inside the helicopter? Not only do they have video footage from inside the helicopter, they also have video footage from outside the helicopter. And the quote-unquote unedited footage that exonerates Richards and brings down this government, it is very, very edited because there are a lot of fucking camera angles. There's the one-shot close-up of Richards. There's the two-shot of him with his co-pilot. Then there's, like, another two-shot, but from a slightly different angle. There's a lot of fucking cameras in this helicopter. You forgot about the point-of-view shot where he gets hit in the face with with the butt of a rifle. Yes, exactly. Like, there's a lot of editing of this footage. It's not like a dashboard cam where they just have one (laughs) camera pointed at the inside of the helicopter and, all right, maybe you believe that the authoritarian government might have something like that. But all of these fucking cameras, no. No, 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 no. Um, But, Ben, I'm going to ask you first because you are our first-time guest. Do you think that The Running Man stands the test of time? So, I was really in my mind trying to reconcile what would constitute this movie standing up. And before I came here, I was, you know, leaning one way. And having sat here and listened to you guys and three other different points of view, I've really been doing a lot of thinking. This is where I land. I feel that it does stand the test of time. I think that from the very beginning of the movie, the way that the text scroll lays out, you know, what's going on, I found that to be weirdly the same as right now. And, and, you know, as I'm trying to figure out, you know, what qualifies for standing the test of time, well, somebody in 87 had these thoughts and put them onto paper and then they made a movie out of it. Some of that shit is true. And so in my mind, to me, that stands the test of time. It was maybe a prediction of the future and partially it came true. The flip side of that coin is I remember how much I liked the action of the movie and the gore of the movie. And... 30 years later, how many many years has it been since the last time that I saw it? We watched it the other night. My cell phone was down. My ringer was off. I wasn't messing around. I was into it. I was enjoying it. It was good. 
I enjoyed it. I thought it was a good, fun action movie. Specifically, you know, that Arnold Schwarzenegger banger in the mid-80s. I loved it. And I personally do feel it does stand the test of time. All right. Very good. Dom, what do you think? I have to agree with Ben on a couple of things and with you, Al, on a couple of things. This movie is goofy. It's over the top. But, like Ben said, it is prescient. I think you could make this movie now, you know, update things. You know, all the same themes would hold true. Maybe even more so. You could go darker, unfortunately, than what this just predicted. But yeah, I think it does stand the test of time. Because if you can remake it and it it still holds up, yeah. Okay. James, what do you think? I think the film is not perfect. Uh, the director of this film was, uh, was a gentleman named Paul Michael Gleiser. Uh, famously, he had done a lot of uh, television directing. He had directed throughout the 70s, and that's a very different kind of direction than movies. He had directed a film, I'm sure we're going to do it at some point. The most famous line from that film is a single word, and it's topic. It's a figure skating movie. Yes. That I do love. Um, the, the Cutting Edge? That's right, The Cutting Edge. Have you ever seen that up? I have. No, we're not doing that on the podcast. Fuck that. <laughs> Why would we do that on the podcast? The Olympics or something. That's when you do it, when the Winter Olympics come. Aren't they in like, like they're in like next year, the Winter Olympics? Uh, no, they were canceled, so we can't do that movie. Sorry. They canceled the Winter Olympics. The Just threat of reason. doing the Cutting Edge ruined, <laughs> ruined the Winter Olympics. Yes. yes, the IOC officially canceled the Olympics on that grounds. James, I will do it with you. <laughs> awesome. Um, you know, Al, you did uh, you you did mention most of the uh, flaws of the film. The plot, some of the stuff that just doesn't make sense. Some, it's not that it doesn't make sense. I feel more it's not properly explained. I think they could have yeah. explained why there was a, a, a rebel insurgency hidden in Quadrant Four, but they just said that's where they're hidden. Needed a little better than that. What size of this is this uh, arena? What exactly are the rules? You know, it's not really explained very well. Some of the aspects of this dystopian future, we have no idea what's going on outside of what we see. And, you know, there is cheesiness to some of the costumes. I think they happen to work. I think I like some of the cheesiness because, like I said earlier, I think the audience buys all of it. Uh, there's a scene when Buzzsaw, uh, that he demonstrates how uh, strong his uh, uh, saws are, and he cuts in, in half what looks like kind of like a metal detector you go through today. I think it was foam. Like, it, w- it certainly was for the movie, but I think they did the same thing in the future. It's fake. But um, the, the overall, I think the film, despite its flaws, it's, it's what uh, Ben and Dom said. It's a fun film, and exactly what Ben said. This is a peak Schwarzenegger mid-'80s film. Personally, I think I like this film better than his other 87 film, which was much more successful and spawned a franchise, and it was much more successful financially, uh, Predator. But I like this film. It's really in the library of great Schwarzenegger films. And I think uh, mostly uh, the thing that stands the test of time is all of these dystopian things that are either totally true or it could be true or the futuristic stuff like the deep fakes and some of the technologies. I think they really nailed. Uh, they missed a couple others. But uh, yes, the 1987's The Running Man stands the test of time. Al, um, do you think The Running Man stands the test of time? So you said that I brought up a lot of the movie's flaws. There are plenty more that I didn't bring up. 
for starters, the whole dystopian future thing that you guys buy, I don't think this is a realistic dystopian future based on the world that we live in. I'm not saying you can't make a dystopian future based on the world that we live in. I just don't see it like this kind where so many people are cheering for people to be murdered on screen. I mean, we have Survivor, and that's a reality show called Survivor, but no one's dying on that show. And no one would want to watch that show if people were actually being hurt. Really? You're you're sure about that? Yes, and I am. Yes, I am. And I can prove it with two words. Damar Hamlet. Football is a violent game. And that man went down and the game stopped. Everyone stopped. Everyone wanted to know if he was okay. Because even when you're watching something that you know is violent, you don't want to see people get hurt. The point of football is to not kill people. If the point of the show is to kill people, that is what people expect, and then they will root for. From what I gathered, Alan, within five minutes of DeMar Hamlin going down, the NFL was already pressing both teams to get into their pre-warm-up routines and getting them ready to go back into the game. And it was if it was not for the coaches of the two teams saying, fuck you, we will not do this, then the NFL, who probably holds some of the most power that this country has ever seen or ever will see, the swing that they have, they would have pushed the game on. Right, but there would have been a huge outcry. I don't think the people at home wanted to see the game go on. You're absolutely right. The NFL was totally pushing for it to keep going. I'll just tell you this uh, one fact, and I wonder what your reaction to this is. Jared Fogle, you know, the uh, the former Subway spokesperson who was convicted of uh, molesting young girls, he got the shit beaten out of him in prison. What do you think about that, Al? And you know what I'm getting. I know what you're getting. Right. If bad things happen to bad people, do you cheer it on? I don't know. I think that some people do and some people would. I guess I'm just not buying this version of a dystopian future where people cheer for people, even if they believe that these people are bad guys and villains and murderers or whatever, that they're going to cheer for them to be killed. And maybe I could believe a dystopian future where that sort of thing happens. But this movie doesn't deliver that. It doesn't create a full world where I understand why this is happening, where these people come from, and why so many people are cheering. And is it just the rich people that are cheering and the poor people hate it? Because it seems like the poor people are betting on it and they kind of enjoy it too. If you're going to build that world, build it. That requires some exposition and that requires some thought and attention to detail. If you don't want to do that and you just want to make a fun action movie where it's a dystopian future, fine. Then don't put that text on screen at the beginning. Just say 2019 Zone XQ47, formerly Bakersfield. Okay, I get it. You know, now I understand it's a military, futuristic state, whatever. Also, the fact that this movie takes place in 2017 or 2019, I'm not totally sure. The text on screen says 2017. It's because uh, it's 2017, the opening part of the film, and then he's in prison for 18 months. Okay, fine. Uh, But, like, that's in the past. And any time a movie takes place in the future, but we've passed it, I automatically, like, kind of have a grudge against it. Even to a certain extent, Back to the Future Part 2, we're past 2015. You want to set a movie in the future, set it in 2743. And then we won't be around to critique it on the podcast. Also, 
Richards has absolutely no character arc. None. He is a hero in the first scene of the movie. He is a hero in the middle of the movie. He is a hero at the end of the movie. No, you're shaking your head, Dom? Shaking, shaking my head, no. At the very beginning, the resistance is trying to get him in. He's like, no, I'm good. I got out of prison. I'm going to go to see my brother. We're going to lay low. I'm out. You guys, good luck with your nonsense. That is not an arc. That is changing your mind. That is not a journey. Also, he mentions his brother. He's going to go see his brother. I was expecting the brother to show up later in the movie. I thought that was a, a thread that, like, he's going to see the brother. He's going to be reunited with the brother. Maybe the brother now works for the bad guys. Oh, no! Something. They never mentioned him. They did. That's where Amber lives. He went to that apartment because that was his brother's apartment. He's like, where's my brother? And she said, a month ago... I got this apartment because the last tenant was sent to a re-education camp. Right. Which means he was probably just killed. No, 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 no. Bullshit. You got to pay that story off. You mentioned a long-lost brother. (laughs) Is this Chekhov's brother? Yeah, kind of. (laughs) Actually, yes. In a movie today, if they mentioned a long-lost brother, they would bring him back. Even if it was just like sequel bait at the very end, they're like, hey, guess what? We found your brother. He's alive. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, fine. Set it up for the sequel. It's weird that they drop that. Um, I don't buy the world. I don't buy the story. The game makes absolutely no sense. Schwarzenegger's critique of the director of this movie was, like you said, James, that he came from the world of television. And he shot this movie like a TV show. And you can't really do that in movies. Movies need depth. They need a world. They need to have a universe that feels real and that you buy. Schwarzenegger's been in several sci-fi movies. I was thinking of Total Recall. In Total Recall, there's a world that is built and you understand it. You get what that world is. You understand the problems that exist there. You understand why his character wants to leave. You get it. You get all of it. This movie doesn't have any of that depth. And Schwarzenegger is right to critique the director of this movie for that. Also, if you just want to look at it as like just a silly action movie, the action one-liners are so fucking terrible. Amazing. No, they're amazing. Amazing. No, no, sorry. These are the exact same fucking lines that Schwarzenegger delivered in Batman and Robin and they were terrible in that movie and everyone thinks that those one-liners are terrible. You think these are good? So much better. I mean, he breaks Sub-Zero's neck and says he was a pain in the neck. That's great. I think that's fantastic. I mean, Buzzsaw had to split after he got a chainsaw up his groin and cut him in half. These aren't great. They're iconic, though. What? Like, it's Schwarzenegger. That's what he's known for. They made an entire character from your favorite TV show ever based on him in these movies. McBain is Schwarzenegger in 1987. Oh, I thought you were maybe going to say American Gladiators, which was inspired by this movie. They said, like, the pitch for that show was we're going to do The Running Man except without the murder, which is kind of funny. Um, But no, in Batman and Robin, he's Mr. Freeze, and he says, all right, everybody, chill. Explain to me how that's any worse than him killing a guy named Fireball and blowing him up and saying... What the hothead? It's the same fucking <laughs> level of humor. And you're laughing. Shame on you, Bats. That's, that's a great line. laughter in the movie, too. Oh, God. <laughs> that is a great line, Al, but that's not the line. He throws him a flare and says, Got a Here, light. have a light. 
And that's also a great line. But Al, you just wrote an amazing 80s Schwarzenegger line. It's definitely we in the movie. We all lied. It, it is? Definitely in the movie. Okay. I well, did. that line's also in the movie. Then you, then there's more than... Then we're all in agreement, except for you, that these are all great Schwarzenegger lines. They are, they are god-awful terrible. Uh, no, this movie does not stand the test of time. <laughs> you knew that I was going to say that it sucked. It was pretty fucking terrible. On virtually every level. <laughs> wow. Except for the three of us. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, and I thought one of you guys would counter me by saying, but what about Hunger Games? What about Squid Games? Those show the exact same thing. No, no one was going to say that. Because I had a counter argument. You want to hear it? Because I prepared sure. it. But what, but what about Hunger Games, Alan? Oh, thank you very much, man. In that world, these kids are killed on a TV show, but... Everyone feels really bad about it. Everyone hates it. People will watch it because they have to, and the rich people like it, but even they're a little bit sad of, about it. It's a sacrifice. Does it make perfect sense? No, but at least there's more explanation. And Squid Games, yes, it's a game where they kill people, but that's just for a select few of super rich people. It's not broadcast to the whole world. So those are small differences, but very important differences. I love that you think so highly of... Mankind. I truly do. I don't! If you listen to this podcast, I sound super fucking cynical all the goddamn time. You know what's a great dystopian future for today? The Handmaid's Tale. You ever watch that show? No. Okay. I know about it. You know of it. That's a future where men have controlled all women. They have subjugated them. They are second-class citizens. That feels very real based on today. That was based on a book written in the 60s, I think? So you can have a dystopian vision of the future that's from the past and can hold up and stand the test of time in different eras. It just requires thought and, you know, details. And maybe Stephen King or whatever his uh, pen name is, maybe in the novel he has all of those details and they're just not in here. But they're not. (laughs) They're not here. When Killian is first talking to Ben Richards and trying to get him in, he's like, do you know about The Running Man? Ben's like, no, I don't. This is the most popular show for at least 10 years. How have you not seen it? He was in jail for two years. How have you not heard of it? But that was something that I was like, are you kidding me? How does he not know the number one show? Like, even if you don't watch it, you've heard of it. My only explanation is that he's either being sarcastic to him and he's lying, or he was also in the military before yeah. then. So maybe these guys live in the barracks. That's and like. They don't want to watch that yeah, crap. Yeah. It's, it's possible, but he still would have heard of it, I think. All right. Well, Dom, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Ben, thank you for coming on the show for the first time, and I hope you will come back. I absolutely loved it. I spent the past week thinking about what this was going to be like, and uh, I very much look forward to coming back. This was awesome. Thank you for the opportunity. You're welcome, but honestly, I don't even know if I want to have you back now. You just said we hope to have you back. Yes, after talking about an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie where he says... I'll be back. No, it's too late. You blew it. I set you up. (laughs) I set you up perfectly, and you just whiffed it. You totally fucking whiffed it, man. You James that. Oh, my God. God. lame. Yeah. But yes, this was great. This was a lot of fun. Thank you guys for coming on the show. That's going to do it for us this week. Next week, special guest Dan DeVetti is going to come back on the show to talk about threesome. We mentioned that when we did our Tombstone episode with him, that uh, his other favorite movie was threesome. So next week, we're going to find out 
why. That's going to be a fun episode. In the meantime, we want to hear from you guys. Tell us what you think about The Running Man and Schwarzenegger and his one-liners and dystopian futures and what kind of dystopian future you like best. And we will see you next time, everybody. Bye, everyone. I'll be back. Mm, Still too late.